of the MTA Board of Directors and Parking Authority Commission. Good afternoon, directors, staff, and members of the public. This meeting is being held in hybrid format with the meeting occurring in person at City Hall, room 416. Uh, broadcast on sfgovtv.org slash sfmta live and by phone. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods today. The phone number to use is 415-655-0001, access code 2485-669-7973. Speakers will have two minutes to provide comment unless otherwise noted by the chair. Please speak clearly, ensure you're in a quiet location and turn off any TVs or computers around you. Uh, we thank you for joining us. Places you on item number two. Roll call. Director Kahina. Present. Kahina present. Director Heminger is here. Heminger present. Director Hinzi. Present. Hinzi present. Director Yukutiel. Here. Yukutiel present. Director Eakin. Here. Eakin present. Chair Borden. Present. Borden present. You have a quorum. And for the record, I note that directors Kahini, Kahina, Hinzi, and Chair Borden are attending this meeting remotely under the authority of the mayor's emergency orders. Directors are reminded that they must appear on camera throughout the meeting in order to speak or vote on any of the items. Item number three, uh, the ringing and use of cell phones and similar sound producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. The chair may order the removal from the meeting room or any persons responsible for the ringing or use of a cell phone or other similar sound producing electronic devices. Places you on item number four, presentation and discussion on the transit shelter maintenance program and condition assessment. Great. Mr. Rewers, are you gonna lead this one? Thank you, Vice Chair Egan, board members, uh, Jonathan Rewers, Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, this is a quick update as we promised. Um, to kind of let you know where we stand with the shelter assessment. Um, first, just to let you know, the Board of Supervisors unanimously approved um, the recommended contract modification, so our second one to our 20-year contract with Clear Channel. Um, the mayor signed the legislation, so now we're doing the, the final administrative steps to execute that amendment. In the meantime, over the past 30-plus days, um, we've completed a preliminary assessment of our more than 1,200 shelters across San Francisco, um, 1,113 to be precise. Based on what we had set up in that contract, 126 of those shelters were identified as being in poor condition. In addition, we've noted issues with 195 shelters with glass, 469 with lights, 170 information boxes, and 128 seats. So those are maintenance corrections that we will also work um, to take care of. Clear Channel has now fully provided us with the regular database of their maintenance activities, and so we're evaluating that now to come up with a plan to cure all of the backlog that existed that you discussed at the last meeting within the terms of the contract, and they have purchased materials um, to get started on at least, they have enough for 24 full shelters, replacement and repairs. That work will start on December 19th, and they've purchased six trucks for the additional staff and expanded crew and are working to get to full staffing by the end of the month. That might not be possible, you know, based on how everybody's dealing with hiring, but that is the plan. So um, a lot of work. Thank you for your support on that contract amendment. Board of Supervisors did a lot of work on that, um, and we got that through, and that is where we are with the Transit Shelter Program. Thank you. Thank you for the update. Uh, colleagues, do you have any questions for Mr. Rewers? Director Yukutiel. Thank you. Um, what is the overlap between the 120 
How many was it? 126? 126. And the backlog. Yeah. So the w- within the contract, there was a requirement to essentially have an asset management score, like literally every component of the shelter, and then that score adds up. So of the ones that were assessed, 126 based on multiple factors, like this shelter does not meet any minimum standard of what we would want to have in the system. So we're almost a full replacement or multiple issues. The backlog is just individual issues at the shelter, like a piece of missing glass, a seat that doesn't work, the lights above that Mm -hmm. don't function. So that includes backlog. And the terms of the contract require that those be cured within a certain period of time. So now that we've executed this amendment, we want to make sure that, that Clear Channel complies and cures those issues within what is expected. Um, and I know Director Kahina and I were interested in what exactly, like how many shelters are in this backlog. Were you able to get an assessment of like of the 1,100 or so shelters, how many are in the backlog? Well, if you include the 195 glass, 469 lights, 170 info boxes, that tells you that at least 500 of them have some sort of issue, maintenance issue that requires curing consistent with the contract. So at least 500 of them. Okay. So I guess when when we started having this conversation, um, and I think we're all on the same page, the idea is it's a one-time refresh, meaning how do we get our entire arsenal of shelters to all look as if the city is ready to accept new customers. And so from my perspective, what I would love to see is how do we get all everything that's in the backlog, anything that's in poor or even moderate condition, back to excellent condition. Um, I'm glad that we've identified 100 or so that are in poor condition, but I definitely want to make sure that the expectation is that all of our shelters should look great. Um, so is that the same... Are we on? Is that exa- is that how it's being communicated to Clear Channel? Is it set on the same wavelength? It's not just the 126. It's it's everything that's in the backlog. Anything that's broken on a shelter should be unbroken by the time this refresh is done. That is minimum compliance with the contract, and so we want to make sure now that the amendment is done and we're in the final five years that yes, the expectation is that shelters should be in excellent condition at all times. The contract requires there be no issues at any of the shelters, or if they are, they're quickly resolved. And so our goal is to get all of those issues resolved. So that includes the ones that are in unacceptable condition, plus the maintenance backlog, making sure that's cleared. Great. So that's second. And then third, that we keep up you know, as issues occur in right. San Francisco and on the streets. And I, and I think well, I'm seeing a lot more shelters have the uh, steel bar behind them as opposed to glass, which I think was kind of a good compromise to not require Clear Channel to keep replacing glass time after time after time. Um, one uh, more kind of clarifying question, just because there are some shelters that are no longer in use because of lines that are no longer in use, I want to make sure that what's happening with those. I've seen some shelters that were previously used for bus bus lines that aren't currently in use. Are they part of the framework here? Or are they just kind of waiting and seeing? So Lisa Ising, and feel free to speak up, Lisa, um, our maintenance superintendent. So she works regularly with the service planning group in, in transit division. So when we have a Muni Ford project or anything like that, we plan for relocation of shelters. So sometimes there's going to be, you know, construction period or realigning stops along a line. We'll take those shelters and we'll relocate them or we'll use that inventory elsewhere in the system. Okay. Then I guess what I would like is if you're saying that this is going to begin in December, I know we we spoke about this a while back and expediency is super important, but I understand that staff needs to be hired and we needed to come up with an assessment of what needed to be done. If we are planning on doing this in mid-December with my colleague's permission, I would love to get um, 
I would love for a report to come back 90 days from that <laughs> with what's been fully completed, um, the rest of the shelters. So I want to know about the 126 that are in poor condition, what condition they're in now. I want to know about the rest. I want to know how long the backlog is, um, whether or not Clear Channel is meeting its terms and conditions. Um, and I guess the last thing is, I think we should have a shelter-by-shelter shelter assessment. I mean, if they're, if they're going out and doing this work, and I'm sure that they are, I think because we are supposedly going to be taking over this, this, uh, this piece of architecture, I think I would like to see in 90 days kind of what, what is, if we have 1,100 shelters, how many are in poor condition, how many are in moderate condition, how many are in excellent. So a, a full report back on, on all this work, because I know it's going to be a lot of hard work on their, on their end, and I'd love to see so that we can show the public kind of the result of all of this effort that we've put into this refresh. Sure. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Great. I think we have some callers on the phone. Director Kahina. Thank you, Vice Chair Egan. Um, Jonathan, big congrats to you and the team for getting this through the Board of Supervisors. Um, and thank you for all the work that you and Lisa have done on this front. Um, echoing everything Manny just, um, Director Ekatel, um just said, um, I think I would love to see your report as well. Um, curious to see if you're noticing any trends in terms of where these um, uh, needs or upgrades are needed, um, specifically how they're intersecting with some of our equity strategy neighborhoods, um, and if you're seeing any trends there. And I will also add that it, part of this 90-day report um, that you bring back to the board, I would love to see like an overlay of some of these uh, hotspots with mm -hmm. uh, that equity uh, strategy neighborhood overlay as well. Uh, but could you give us some some color, some um, some feedback on like what your what trends you're seeing um, in terms of some of those repairs that you've already noted? Sure. I, I, actually, that's that is. Thank you very much for asking that. I I fully intended on doing the analysis you asked for. So thank you again for reinforcing it. Um, now that we have full access to Clear Channel's database, where they regularly take photos, we can see what works being done. All that stuff. Um, all those shelters are also geolocated, so we can do exactly what you're talking about. We're actually doing it now. We're looking at the patterns month over month. And there was a reason for that too, right? We wanted to have the flexibility around maintenance to add maintenance and maybe even more than the baseline if it were required, again, to have a baseline condition for the riders as they use the system, but also to look at those patterns where we're seeing continuous glass, continuous breaks, and other things. So not not dealing with it, but taking your example of kind of maybe understanding human behavior and where things are happening and why, where we can work with other city departments to kind of deal with issues in those neighborhoods and along those lines. Um, we continue to, I think one of the biggest issues that we continue to have, and, and I'll give a good example, Van S, is the acid etching. Like that's, that's a huge problem and we want to have glass in place for the riders, especially we get into the winter, rainy, windy season, right, as, as people are trying to get on their bus and train. But it's, in the case of acid etching, we just have to completely replace the glass. It's not cleaning, even if it's not broken, it's just not good for neighborhoods, and it's just it just gives a bad look to the shelter, and that gets to the bars. Um, that, I think, is a, is a pattern of behavior we're continuing to see that we don't have a perfect solution to. It shouldn't be always just absolutely removing the glass. And so I think we're going to have to work with Clear Channel on a compromise around that. 
Um, I think the funny thing, and I've noted this before, the digital shelters where we're going to be expanding those tend not to get vandalized as much. I have no idea why human behavior, who knows what's going on, but it just doesn't occur. So that's another odd pattern that we often see. So when we talk about the placement of, of the new set of those, I think we should consider what neighborhoods wear and, and what makes sense and work with Clear Channel on that. So happy to come back with that analysis and have a, a really good and robust discussion about it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And I think one of the things I, I failed to mention also, and you just said it, you just articulated this, is as you're um, going through this analysis, understanding what tools in the toolbox we have to kind of address some of the behaviors we're noticing, right? And so that 90-day report that you bring back to us, it'd be great to, to see um, some of the solutions you all are proposing. So, um, uh, director, you could tell, kind of mentioned one of them already, um, having that um, back bar instead of having a glass um, uh, backing uh, to the shelter. Um, but trying to think of like different solutions that you're seeing even other cities or other um, sister cities um, uh, utilize in their shelters, um, just to give us a sense of how you guys are pivoting your strategy in real time um, as you're trying to address these issues. Can do. Thank you. Great, thank you, Director Kahina. Director Hinzi, I believe, also has a question on the phone. All right, and mine is actually a perfect uh, add-on to Director Kahina's question, which is, I wonder if in this backlog and in the, these shelters that are in poor condition, as you get the materials, are you thinking about you know what prioritization among the shelters with things that need to be replaced, i.e. in equity priority neighborhoods, high ridership lines, kind of, we'll be seeing that layover, right, uh, when you come back to us in 90 days, but kind of a sort of a high level thinking as to how you're thinking about allocating your resources as they come in through the repairs that you've identified. Uh, we will do that, and it's part of the reason that we had the equity metrics in how we make these maintenance and repair decisions included in the amendment itself. So now that it's executed, we're going to talk with Clear Channel probably over the next month about how that should be executed. Our equity neighborhoods are standard baseline for doing just that. Now that we have the database of the locations and we know the issues at each of the shelters in those locations, and we can look at it month over month in the form of a pattern and longitudinal data, I think that will inform um, the prioritization and, and where we do the work. And I think in responding to Director Kahina, we will have different treatments on how we deal with things in, in different parts of the city. Again, to ensure a certain level of, of safety, cleanliness, and experience for the riders across the system. Right. Thank you, Madam Vice Chair. Thank you. Uh, Chair Borden, I think you also have a question. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, not to belabor the point on the destruction, but I mean, what are, are do people ever get prosecuted or caught for vandalism? I mean, I, I just feel like have we thought about a campaign we can do working with our partner to, you know, ask people to, you know, have grace on the shelters. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that people vandalize these, but I also think that we have to do more. The solution isn't, you know, putting a metal bar. I think it's how do we change the culture? Um, and what, if any, have we thought about with an advertising campaign since the shelters do advertising where we ask mm -hmm. people to like 
not damage the shelters and people to report people damaging the shelters and making sure we people know it's a crime or whatever. I mean, I just feel like we have to do something more deterrent rather than keep changing it and trying to figure out different implementations of, of solutions. So maybe you could talk about what, if any, conversations we've had specifically with Clear Channel about mm -hmm. how we how we how we fix this right what is it would could they you know work with us on the resources of a campaign like we would maybe get the content that they could help put somewhere in the one of their digital boxes now since it's digital that yep. ask people not to damage the shelters and remind them the people to report and all that stuff yeah um what we're doing i mean that's a, that's a perfect question and i think we're setting ourselves up to do that exact thing so i'm kind of referring back to human behavior like where are we seeing those patterns? Why is it happening? In what portions of the city? And then what are our treatments? But you're, you're talking about upstream, like just stopping it from happening in the beginning. What we're actually doing um, now is we're looking at other cities, other transit agencies, and even either comparable cities to San Francisco or other kind of levels of metrics to understand. A lot of people want to think it's just a San Francisco issue. Maybe it isn't just San Francisco. But if it is, then what messaging and, and what types of campaigns can we be preventative? You know, should people take pride in the city? Please don't vandalize our shelters. You know, how, how that might work. Um, right now, we're, we're looking at New York, Atlanta, Chicago, just trying to get a sense of are these patterns of behavior just consistent in heavily urbanized cities? Um, preliminarily, it's not. And um, I think that that begs the question, what kind of messaging can we get to the public to say, you know, you own the transit system, you know, take care of it. And, and you know, it's part of your city. So we're, we're doing that work now. And in 90 days, happy to add that as, as part of what we can do um, as a tactic to try to stop some of this stuff. And I would just add, if we could talk to the Y tab and get them engaged on this. Because Absolutely. I'm not saying it's all youth or anything. I'm just saying that, like, I've also, we've also have the youth art program. I know that's really more related to on the buses, but, but I think about how we can incorporate that or even just this notion I've had for a while about a social media takeover by some of our youth, maybe it's members of the YTAB, maybe there's a competition, but um, trying to do something where we, maybe we have them crowdsource a campaign message that reaches, you know, young people and younger adults around this topic. I mean, I think it'd be a great use of the YTAB. I think it's a great use of our just general constituency of, of riders to maybe have them help us crowdsource a campaign, right? That we could put together and that people would all, it could be something that more organically, everyone is kind of helping to have input on in. Because I think that part of it is in San Francisco, there's a culture of bad behavior. And like, it's interesting because in some areas there's too many Karens but when it comes to these issues around, you know, keeping our, 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 our streets clean and our bus shelters nice and all that sort of stuff, people look the other way. People sometimes engage in bad behavior themselves because they feel like everybody else does it. And, and how we can just kind of get people to build on that, that mutual sense that we must improve things as a group. Um, so let's, can you please take this to the Y tab and yes. think about this maybe with the comms team as something to do? Because I honestly think we're never going to solve this problem if we don't have a proactive upfront solution. I, I love the idea. I will. I was with the YTAB last night, so I will go back to them. And I think this is this is a great thing for them to engage on. Absolutely great. Okay, great. Uh, I tried to make this quick. I didn't even do a PowerPoint. I, <laughs> I tried. We know. We know. 
So if there are no further questions from directors, I'd like to open it for public comment from anyone in the room. Any public comment on item four, transit shelter maintenance program? Please, please come to the podium. Good afternoon, directors. Uh, Mark Leeson. I'm speaking on behalf of uh, the uh, workers who are represented by Teamsters 853, who are very excited about the uh, this uh, project going forward. Uh, there's going to be a, a job fair that we're looking forward to this week to add to the workforce, uh, and uh, they are, are just very, very excited to be part of this and hoping for the approval this month so they can jump in and boots on the ground and, and go forward. So. We just wanted to express our partnership with this project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Any other comments in the room? Seeing none, I will open it up for online comments. We do have one caller in the queue. First speaker. Can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. That is David Pilpel. Always happy to follow my good friend, Mark Gleason. Um, so yes, I noticed that there was no PowerPoint or presentation or other uh, background materials posted on the website in connection with this item. I'm not sure that this needs uh, a monthly or regular report, maybe an annual report, maybe a periodic report, uh, but when there's a, a report on uh, shelter maintenance, I think it would uh, help to have uh, some written materials uh, in advance with some of the uh, data points about the number of uh, calls, number of um, uh, replacements, uh, uh, average time it takes to uh, replace uh, a shelter with uh, glass and, and whatnot, uh, maps of shelters with uh, different conditions, uh, people waiting there people waiting, people not waiting, people sleeping there, whatever, uh, and, and photos uh, and of current locations layering on uh, the service network, um, various things. Anyway, um, and I also uh, spoke to Lisa Ising earlier um, about a, a particular shelter that got whacked over the um, weekend, and I was assured that it will be attended to. I know that is true. Um, so, uh, good work uh, by uh, Jonathan and, and Lisa on this, and um, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other callers on the phone for item four? No, no more callers. Okay. We'll close public comment. Please call the next item. Places you on item number five, approving the SFMTA's fiscal years 2022-2023 short-range transit plan and approving an update to the agency's internal bus stop guidelines as an appendix to the short-range transit plan. All right. Uh, good afternoon, directors. Uh, Sean Kennedy, transit planning manager um, here at the MTA. Are you guys hearing about bounce back? Maybe that's just because uh, really, really good... Really good uh, <laughs> building in here. Um, so um, I'm going to just do a very quick overview of what we're going to talk about because um, I want to set the stage a little bit. And then I'm going to turn it over to Steve, um, who will walk through a lot of the specifics. But um, first off, just wanted to start um, noting that MTC uh, coordinates uh, short-range transit plans, or SRTPs, for all the transit agencies um, in the region. Um, they do that every two years. Um, last year, or the last cycle, 2020, we did not uh, have an SRTP update due to due to COVID. So this is uh, the first one in four years, um, and it's a little different 
than, than previous cycles. Uh, they are hoping to use these SRTPs as a way to advocate uh, for more state and, and federal funding for transit operations, which is, uh, which is great news. Uh, but in order to do that, they wanted an apples and apples comparison uh, amongst all the transit agencies in the region. So they provided us three scenarios. Um, and Steve is going to walk through uh, those, those, those scenarios. But um, uh, I just wanted to note that this is, these are MTC's numbers. Um, we are still on track uh, to do what we talked about uh, several meetings ago, which is to implement uh, the winter 2022 service changes uh, within the next 12 months. And then we will be starting a robust outreach process after that um, to look at what the future vision, uh, you know, what future service um, for the city looks like. So just wanted to note, you know, what we talked about today, we're, we're still on track for, for doing what we have talked about previously. Um, additionally, one other um, interesting thing that I want to point out is that typically when we do these SRTP updates, we also take that chance to update policies. Um, and uh, in this case, even though it is a different format, we also um, are bringing forward a change to our flag stop policy. And so Steve is going to explain that as well. But, um, you know, both of us will be here for questions um, afterwards, and, and we, can, um, we can delve further into that uh, at that point. So with that, I will uh, turn it over to Steve. Thank you, Sean. Good afternoon, directors. Okay, uh, so I, you know, as Sean mentioned, I am here today to talk to you primarily uh, about the latest update to our short-range transit plan. Uh, this is a document that we are required to produce uh, as a condition of funding from MTC. Uh, historically, as Sean said, it was updated every two years, uh, and it was typically about 100 pages or so in length. Basically, it was a compendium of existing plans and policies, including financial projections. However, as with so many other things, the pandemic changed this, and so the last SRTP cycle was skipped, as Sean mentioned, and for this cycle, uh, MTC has changed things up uh, in a pretty significant way. So what they've done is they developed three financial scenarios, which you can see uh, here on screen. This is an image developed by MTC staff. Uh, they have asked all, I believe it's 26 transit operators in the region to respond to those scenarios. Uh, and as you can see here, there it's basically a best case and a worst case and kind of a medium scenario. Um, however, for reasons I'll explain in just a moment, the best case scenario actually results in less revenue than our adopted budget for fiscal year 23, which I know sounds very strange, but I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, and the worst case scenario is not the worst possible case, uh, as it doesn't envision uh, what some have called a fiscal cliff. Uh, under which revenues would decline sharply. So it's important to understand that these scenarios represent a relatively narrow range of financial possibilities. So to be clear, this is not a criticism of MTC. Uh, there are very good reasons that they took this approach. Uh, you know, as Sean alluded to, uh, you know, they are going to use the collective SRTPs from all the regional operators as a tool uh, to advocate for additional operating funds as needed. Uh, however, I do wish to emphasize that the SRTP reflects our response to the MTC scenarios and not necessarily the agency's internal financial or service planning processes. So 
As I mentioned before, MTC's best case financial scenario, which they call robust recovery, uh, actually results in less revenue than our adopted budget for fiscal 23. Uh, as you know, this isn't because we've expanded service during the pandemic. Uh, rather, it's because we've been dealing with the same inflation issues as, well, everyone else, uh, among other cost drivers. Uh, and MTC's projections were based on historically low escalation rates. I believe they started with FY19 as a baseline and escalated at a rate of 2.2% annually, which of course is well below current inflation rates. So it's important to understand that while our SRTP shows a slight reduction in service and even the best case scenario, in reality, we are not currently planning reductions to service. Instead, we are still working to implement the increased service that this board approved just over a year ago. So getting back to the SRTP itself, it is very brief. Uh, you've seen it uh, in your package. It's a short memo, essentially, with an accompanying spreadsheet that was provided by MTC, and they asked us to just fill in a few basic numbers looking out five years. Uh, that includes you know, basic service metrics such as revenue service hours uh, to go along with those financial projections. So MTC's ask to regional operators was fundamentally to talk about what service might look like under these financial scenarios. Our response was to talk to them in general terms about what our service planning principles would be under their scenarios, or under any financial scenario for that matter. Uh, those principles, as you can see here, include focusing on service delivery and state of good repair, uh, as well as supporting our climate and equity goals, uh, as well as supporting the city's economic recovery. Um, over the course of the pandemic, we've been making investments in line with those priorities, uh, as I think you all well know, including a rapid expansion of our network of transit-only lanes. So in the SRTP, we were asked to give some idea of what service would look like under those financial scenarios developed by MTC. And we did state that to the extent possible, we would seek to avoid suspension of routes like you saw during the pandemic. Instead, if the reduction in revenues were relatively modest, as projected under MTC scenarios, we would seek to limit reductions to service levels, specifically headways and spans of service. And those cuts would be based on analysis of actual and not theoretical conditions of where reductions might have the least impact. So one more thing I wanna emphasize again is that the MTC scenarios did not envision a dramatic drop in revenue. And there is still some concern both internally within the agency as well as at the city level about what some have called that fiscal cliff scenario uh, under which city revenues would decline dramatically. That is not reflected in this document and it would require a steeper reduction in service. Now, I wanna shift gears a little bit and talk about the appendix to the SRTP that Sean had mentioned. Uh, this would be the update to our internal bus stop guidelines to reflect changes that were requested by the Board of Supervisors. Namely, a change in our approach to what we call flag stops. Uh, for those who don't know, these are stops at which, in most cases, there are vehicles parked along the curb, which require riders to go around cars and trucks to get on or off the bus or train. About a third of our stops are currently flag stops most of these are lightly used stops in residential areas. And by the way, uh, just to reiterate, we are including this as an appendix to the SRTP because we've used the SRTP in the past as a way to bring policy updates before the board. So the Board of Supervisors has asked us to provide, quote, unobstructed access 
to buses and trains at these stops. And the proposed policy change before you today would do that by providing at least 20 feet of red curb or a no parking zone at flag stops. Uh, in some cases, we might want to convert flag stops to what we call a bus zone, which is the painted box that buses pull into. Uh, in other cases, we might want to convert the stop to a bulb or sidewalk extension. Today, we're just asking you to approve the policy change, uh, but we have been working on a plan for implementation that would prioritize changes based on input from our accessible services group. I do want to note that any actual physical changes would require an environmental process. We could then make changes at stops on the near sides of intersections where front doors of, of transit vehicles are near the corner with approval from the city traffic engineer. Uh, we anticipate that we can implement roughly 75 near side stops per month. Uh, I do want to add that we may be returning to you at a future meeting for additional authorization to extend red curbs at stops on the far sides of intersections beyond 20 feet. Uh, this is because the front door, obviously, on our 40-foot coaches is further from the corner. So today, again, we are asking you to approve both the bus stop guidelines update, which is an appendix to the SRTP, as well as the SRTP itself. We do need to deliver the approved SRTP to MTC by the end of the year, which is why we've, part of the reason I'm sorry that you're having this special meeting today is we're trying to make that deadline. Uh, we will be returning to you hopefully in uh, two years or so uh, with an SRTP that represents more of a return to normal conditions. Uh, hopefully we won't be talking about financial crises at that point, but who can say? That concludes my presentation. Uh, Sean and I are happy to answer any questions and I believe Jonathan can, can speak to some of these issues as well. Okay, thank you. Um, if it's okay, Director Ikuti, I'm gonna ask Director Heminger to go first just because he hasn't, hasn't spoken as much. Go ahead. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Um, could we go back to slide nine? I, I'm, I'm a bit confused uh, about how you've characterized this exercise. Um, I mean, first of all, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this exercise actually landed in the papers uh, because this fourth scenario was labeled by the press the doomsday scenario. And uh, it occasioned quite a bit of commentary because it talked about BART, as I recall, basically running weekday service only and not running on the weekends, things like that. So. This fourth scenario, did MTC ask for three scenarios or four? Three. So where did the fourth one come from? It's not in the SRTP. It, it is in the SRTP in the sense that we felt obligated to mention that based on our own internal analyses, you know, our discussions with, you know, the mayor's office and, the, you know, the rest of the city family, um, it is a possibility that's sort of looming out there. And I think, you know, Jonathan can speak more specifically to our own internal financial projections, but it is not one of the three MTC scenarios. Their worst case scenario amounted to about 85% of pre-COVID revenue. An end of federal funding, but not that dramatic drop in local revenue. Well, but the federal emergency funding is going to end. That's correct. Um, I believe it's ending for us earlier than BART. As an example, they've stretched it out to, I think, 25. Um, so if MTC didn't ask for it, Somehow it found its way in the papers. Uh, maybe it was just an enterprising reporter. But what's your view of this fourth scenario? And what would it mean for Muni? 
so let me let me start. Jonathan Ruhr's uh, chief strategy officer and our new CFO, Brima Horder, is here. So eventually, she'll be taking some of these questions. Um, so th- the fourth scenario is something that we've considered throughout the pandemic. It's and it's something that we've presented in our five year and thirty year financial forecasts. Simply that our own enterprise revenues just never get back to pre pandemic levels. So we've shown the board this before. It's just a permanent bump down. And where We're, are we today, in terms of pre pandemic revenue and ridership? So that, that's a good question, Bree. You can you can come up and join me for for some of the some of this party. So we intend on giving you an update on that at the board workshop. Um, the board did set performance. measures. Uh, how about today? Do you want to do you want to give a quick? I'm going to let her do it. This is a her top job. Of mind figure, I'm sure for you all. Hello, board. Good afternoon. My name is Brima Horder. I am the new CFO of the MTA. It's my 18th day on the job. Welcome. So, and yes, uh, where we are with revenues is obviously at the top of my mind as well. And as Jonathan mentioned, we are actively working on updating our projections, and we plan to have them ready to present to you at the MTA board workshop. But broadly speaking, I can say that we are definitely not where we are. Uh, we're pre-pandemic, and we are not where we thought we would be in the budget year. So, Well, in terms of ridership, the last number I've seen was a little north of 50%. Is, is that about right? Uh, oh. So I think what, what we're looking at is every year of the pandemic, what we saw is in the summer months, let's say July, August, September, People were out. Things trend-wise looked like they were correcting. Now, and we'll remember two years ago, all of a sudden we had that discussion about potential layoffs. The year before we had a deficit reduction kind of plan. October, November, there were new waves of the pandemic, and then our projections didn't hold. Things started declining. We're One of the things that Bree's working on that we're trying to confirm is we're trying to close the second quarter. So we're closing October. We're going to close November it is looking like people are getting the flu. People are staying home more than they used to with any indications of any illness. And so we are starting to see that drop off, which again, all of our financial projections just kind of not not heavy growth to restoration, but just month over month, things get better and better. And it's looking like we might not see that pattern this year, but we want to confirm that and share that with you at the board workshop. But So are, are we off course? For this fiscal year, then? So one area of weakness that, that I know about and, and Bree's team is, is confirming is we are um, year over year lower in meter revenue compared to a year ago. That is probably something we should be concerned about, that kind of post-pandemic, people are vaccinated, people have been out, that a year later compared to last year when we were walking into Delta, our meter revenues aren't matching where we were. That again, is a sign. Oh, we were trending upward, and now we're sort of plateauing? Yes. So, But again, as Bree's saying, we're going to have a full analysis for you at the okay. board workshop. Yeah, you're doing really well not answering the question and we, today. And, well, because we want to have accurate numbers. <laughs> Fair I don't enough. Think Bree or but I want to give you an answer numbers. without That's all confirming. board members need. Yeah. Um, trend is not good. That is the current answer. Well, the trend is not good. And one thing that struck me about the press reporting on this, uh, it may have been a bit alarmist, but I think there's probably enough evidence out there to be alarmed. Um, And, 
you know, my take on the thing, and as you know, I represent this board on Caltrain, and Caltrain's sort of an extreme case. Uh, commuter railroad, uh, overwhelmingly uh, driven by the Silicon Valley economy uh, and our economy here. Um, and they just dropped off a cliff, just like BART did, because they were so heavily dependent on fares, which in the old days used to be a good thing. We used to send them letters from MTC saying, way to go, guys. Um, and now we've realized what dependence on fair revenue means uh, in the case of a downturn like this. I've always seen the, the MTA operation as being a lot more diverse mm -hmm. uh, and more financially diverse. Uh, and that seems to still be holding true. Mm -hmm. But we've sort of lost connection with our trend now, and even we are, are sort of falling back. Is, is that all fair? I think one thing we need to take into consideration, which is one reason Bree and I are dancing around it, is one point of strength that held well for us over the past decade was the city's general fund. We are waiting for a recast from the controller's office of their general fund projections, which is something outside of our control. So that's, that's one factor as the city sort of resets itself post-pandemic, we might have to rethink what that means. And that means us considering options compensating for that revenue loss with our own enterprise revenue sources, either parking sources or transit fares. So, so that's one component of it. As you noted, our enterprise revenues, and Bree just noted, are still weak and are not coming back as quickly as we would have hoped in any of the scenarios we've come up with to date because people are settling into pandemic behaviors and those behaviors might be permanent and we need to correct for well, that. Well, so I, I, my problem here, and I am coming to a point, colleagues, uh, my problem here is sort of a bit of cognitive dissonance because you're basically confirming without giving me numbers that... We're, we've fallen off the path of tracking our upward revenue projections. Sean just said, but hey, 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 don't worry. We're going to raise, uh, we're, we're going to restore service like we promised you. Well, restoring service costs money. So at, at what point do we reconcile those two realities? Uh, do I introduce myself? This is my first big seat meeting, guys, so apologies. <laughs> Julie Kirschbaum acting for uh, Jeff Tumlin. I, what, what Sean is trying to convey is what we talked about on November 15th, which is we are well inside of our budgeted service levels right now because of the hiring pipeline. And right. so we, we believe that we are going to be able to continue to meet the 2022 service network, which is a relatively modest increase over where we are today, and still have time for the board to have a discussion about, are we projecting up, are we projecting down, are we projecting in the middle? We're also, you know, as, as service planners, you know, our, our heart is with you know meeting the city's long-term goals of equity and, and climate change so we remain optimistic that we are going to come up with a funding solution whatever shape that takes it is probably not going to be just that all of our previous covid funding sources 
magically, you know, you know, reignite. But that, that federal money was like, I believe, over a billion dollars for Muni, right? Over Correct. three years, yes. And we're, we've basically burned our way all the way through that now. No. How no, much is not. left? If, if I may. Yeah. Um, again, Brima Hoarder, CFO. Um, we have a, this year we've budgeted 371 million to use in this current year budget. We anticipate to that we will continue to have access to funds like BART through 2025. I think one of the interesting trends that we note is not only is revenue slightly down, but expenditures are also lower than anticipated. As um, Julie alluded to, when you don't hire operate when you when it's difficult to hire staff, you don't spend money. So I think the, the broad stroke is that revenues are less than we anticipated, but so are expenditures. Right. And that's how we're able to maintain well, our current level of service. the problem with that is that when you have salary savings of the size we have, you want to fix that, right? You want to spend that money. And right. if you get close to spending that money, then you get close to not having more money. That is the nuance. However, the silver lining is that because we have so much expenditure savings in the current year, we are not tapping the federal funds to the extent that we okay. thought we would so at this point that, in the that, year. That's starting to make sense. So it's starting to, it, the, the longer that this trend goes on, the more cushion it gives us at the back end, which creates room for us, as Julie said, to find another solution. Right. We really are trying to give ourselves a long enough runway that we can find another solution to bridge the gap. But we're not counting on more federal money than this. We're just spending it slower than we thought. Correct. Correct. Right, because with a Republican House, that's whistling Dixie. Yep, um, correct. Okay, uh, when do we get this workshop? It's currently scheduled. We the of February? February. February 7th. Okay, well, that's not too long to wait. Uh, I think these are important questions, colleagues, and I, I applaud MTC for trying to suss this out at a regional scale um, because, uh, look, we want all of these systems to recover and provide new service, uh, but you can't do it with no money. So uh, I look forward to that workshop. Thank you. Okay, great. And just if I'm just going to jump in the queue here, just as a practical matter, just so we're all the crystal clear on what we are proving today and what we're not. It, it seems to me that the actually the most substantive and meaningful aspect of what we're doing is this bus stop guidelines update because that's sort of real. No, no, I'm not asking about that. I'm not asking about that. What, what I'm saying is, as I read this document, it's a series of hypotheticals. Mm -hmm. We're saying if this, then this, potentially, but that none of what is in here, this plan, actually ties our hands to do anything quarter by quarter the way that we have actually approved a real service plan change for winter of 2022. That so is correct. Just to, the, just to not undermine anybody's work, but understand what this doesn't tie our hands or commit us to actually doing anything. This is a series of hypotheticals. Yes. Uh, and so it's useful for fundraising purposes, but... How much does this really matter? And and I will add one piece of nuance because it gets to something that Director Hemminger noted, the diversity of the MTA's funds. When we report to MTC, we report strictly as Muni. So we slice off our Department of Transportation function as the complete MTA. And what we did during the pandemic and what we do with these diverse sources is we shift more parking revenue to transit. 
So on the baseline books, if Muni stands alone, it looks different than when you look at us as the complete um, MTA. That was definitely an issue as we were talking about the transit federal relief in the region, right? Because we were, it was kind of unfair that we were put in that situation. So we're very careful to report strictly as the municipal railway who we are as a transit agency when we show these numbers. So that gets to Julie and others about how we've managed through the pandemic, and even in some of these hypothetical scenarios, how we would manage these scenarios even if they materialize. And that, that is today's understanding of how we might manage those scenarios, yep. as we know, as you have all lived through. <laughs> when you're throwing curveballs, you react in the moment with the information you have at that time. So, so just to clarify, nothing's tying our hands about what's in this memo. We're gonna do what's the best decision for the agency in the moment. Correct. Okay, great. Uh, Director Yucutiel. Thank you, chair of the moment, <laughs> chair of the physical presence, um, with the with the chair, other chair on the video. I don't know. Um, I, a few clarifying questions, Director Hemingrass. A lot of the ones that I had. Uh, one particular um, piece of information that I was hoping to get today was that delta between um, fare revenue and occupancy or clicks, like how many, because I think before we had something like 25% of fare revenue, mm -hmm. but 50 to 60% of um, boots on the ground. So what is it now? That, that's it. Which then elicited a whole, you know, fare uh, guard. I'm forgetting all of our internal terminology right now, but co so, fare collectors. Yeah, I, I remember the conversation. And so we, we've taken that back, and it is a topic that we will discuss um, likely at the board workshop or in and around there. So your question has to do with the amount of riderships and how much we're collecting per trip, where in our normal reporting, you know, based on all of our fare programs, free, whatever, there was a certain amount per trip that we collected from every passenger, and that made up essentially what our fare revenue was. And is, you know, I will tell you now that, Revenue per passenger is lower than pre-pandemic. There are reasons based on the nature and who the ridership is today. Um, we, are, we have updated our ridership estimates. It was one thing that we needed to do to check the estimates we showed you during the budget and now. But now we're doing that underlying um, what fare products are being purchased, who's the nature of the ridership. As Director Tumlin noted, two areas of difficulty for us are people who use Muni Mobile, because there's no tagging or Clipper, so it's hard. Like, we collect the the data, but we're not sure if they're paying either through a fast pass or another way. Um, we're, we need to make some assumptions around that. And then, you know, as as Julie knows, cable car is a bit tough for us, because we, we have a sense of the revenue. It's kind of hard for us to figure out the ridership. Okay. Um, uh, this board also voted not to increase fares in the last mm -hmm. budget cycle. So for me, it is important to know... It's kind of a meta question, but what is the delta of the deltas? Because obviously, presumably before the pandemic, we had less people. Every single person that stepped onto the municipal railway did not pay their fares, and there was some difference. And what I would like to know in the work, if not now, then in the workshop is, you know, if it was 80% of people had fares that, that we could understand, what is it now? And what's mm -hmm. the difference between, is it 50%, is it 60? Um, because if we're not raising fares, perhaps we need to do more on the fare collection side. So that, that's typically a calculation of what a fare evasion estimate is. Um, we will have enough data to have a discussion about that. Doing the actual fare evasion calculation is actually really difficult, and we do major studies and plans and intercept surveys when we do it. But 
I, I think the board has asked a couple times to have a discussion about this, so we will tee it up to have a discussion about it. Cool. And then the only other question, thank you for that. The only other question I have is on um, the bus, the, no, I was going to say shelters, on the bus stops. Um, why do we need to do environmental reviews on this? I mean, I want us to be the agency that says environmental reviews as a way to gum up other seemingly natural orders of business. I want us to be the ones that say, no, we're not going to do that. We're just not. So can someone explain to me the environmental impact of why we even would need to do that? I mean, what is that? The uh, resisting saying snarky things about CEQA. Uh, I completely understand where you're coming from. I think the short answer to that is physical changes. Um, you can adopt this policy change today, and that's one thing, but if we actually go out and start removing parking, um, then that is a physical change. I think the good news is we can do a blanket environmental review. We've had some initial discussions with our environmental review team uh, that will kind of cover everything up front, and then at that point, the process is a very streamlined one. At that point, it's using the existing authorization that the city traffic engineer has for what we call daylighting, pedestrian safety improvements at intersections, where we'll often do 20 feet of red curb closest to the corner for reasons of OPED safety. Uh, we could proceed on that basis. And that's how we, we, we can achieve what is, uh, I think, a pretty great pace. I mean, I, I mentioned briefly, we're talking about potentially 75 stops per month, which right. is a lot. We could get through the entire back catalog of near side flag stops in, you know, 12 to 18 months or something. Right. Before it was seven years, I think, and that was the, the figure that got people kind of riled up. And now it's down from seven years to maybe a year, year and a half, which I guess seems Director more sensible. You could tell. I just want to clarify that just just because the environmental clearance is a step that needs to happen Please don't interpret that as that it is a laborious or a, a long process. Okay. We're just trying to be transparent for this board and everybody listening that it is still a step that needs to be completed, but we don't anticipate it to be a, a lengthy or a burdensome process. Okay. Thank you, I, just, I often hear that sometimes people use these environmental reviews as a way to stop things from happening. And I, I hope that doesn't happen here. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know if I, I am. Okay, I hope people don't use it as an opportunity. Okay, I, I do, I sure hope. Okay, so that's, that's helpful to know that it went from seven years to a year, year and a half. That seems more sensible I'm, to... The, the, the seven-year program included some other things, just to be clear. I, I see. Mean, we're, yeah, I mean, we, you know, I said 900 near-side flag stops. The total number we have in the system, I think, is about 1,200. So there are the far side stops I mentioned in my presentation. We may need additional authorization in order to address those. Some of them we may want to convert into bus zones or, or bulbs. So there, there are other things going on within and that full How many, uh, sorry, not to open up the can of worms too much, but I'll just crack it open a touch. Um, how many of these parking spots are metered versus non-metered, do you know? And if, the, and if for the ones that are metered, and I don't, I don't see Ted here, but... Um, are we thinking of making up some of that meter revenue with side streets or you know parking meters around the corner or something? Because per the conversation we just had, we do need to make sure that our meter revenue isn't completely eviscerated. So are we thinking of a replacement plan? Yeah. Um, thank you, Director. Uh, Sean Kennedy, Transit Planning Manager. So, um, you know, that, so uh, you had asked about the seven-year process, and, and originally um, we had totally, we had a different way of approaching this originally, where we were going to attack uh, the, the real 
major corridors, the ones that were frequent and rapid routes first, and, and those we thought actually needed full zones, and so we, it was going to take a while for outreach and, 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 to, and to do those things. We've since um, switched our tact and are now um, instead proceeding with a 20-foot you know, clear zone idea first, and then we'll go back. Uh, to the other locations where we want uh, lo longer zones or, 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 or transit bulbs. So each, each one of these has to be looked at, and that, was, you know, that goes into partly why it takes a year to do uh, 900 of these locations is because we have to physically send out an engineer to put together the work order to say, like, you know, we need 17 feet of red curb or we need, you know, 20 feet of red curb. I like, you know, it'll, it'll change depending on what's going on in the street. And at that point, you know, we will be able to find out, you know, what, how many of these 900 locations um, do do have metered parking? Where would we put it? You know, to replace it around the corner or, or, or some other location like that. So that that'll be worked in that process, and that's why we think we 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 get anywhere from fifty to seventy five a month. We think is what we'll be averaging. So you know that'll kind of ebb and flow as you know more more commercial areas. You know, might be a little slower. Um, more residential areas might be a little faster on the implementation side. Okay, I, I hear you, but I think what for the takeaway though is. For me, at least, is that that's part of the analysis that sure. is going into. Yep. But how many of these are metered spots versus? I, I, I don't know a number right now. Okay. I mean, I know we have 900 that we're going to be looking at, and I'm not sure how many of those are metered or not. Okay. Can we know at some point once it's that analysis has been done? Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate it. Okay. Director Hemminger had a quick follow-up question. Yes, Madam Chair, I, I appreciate your indulgence, but I, I, I wanted to pile on uh, about this issue. I, I had meant to ask it earlier. Um, so can I just ask a legal question? Are, are we certain that removing uh, a parking spot here and there and somewhere across town is subject to any kind of CEQA action at all? Uh, good afternoon, Directors. Stephanie Stewart-Bethune, uh, City Attorney's Office. Director Heminger, to your question, and as I believe staff mentioned, it's something that will be evaluated. It's not necessarily going to be a long and thorough process, but it is something that must be evaluated given the nature of, of the work that's anticipated. Well, but we can say it won't be long and thorough, but it could also lead to litigation. That's what CEQA is used for largely in this state, is stopping things. Um, so if we don't have to expose ourselves to that, you're saying that's a determination you're going to make before we start this project? We will undergo the requisite CEQA evaluation to determine whether right. or not, or the, uh, the extent to which um, CEQA has to be done. We had used, uh, I, I think in a similar context, Senator Weiner's legislation yeah. about transit and right. non-motorized projects. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that comes in handy here or not, because we're talking about cars. Um, but uh, have we analyzed whether that could be deployed in this instance? I'm not aware of whether or not that analysis has been done, but certainly I think staff um, from our office were willing to look at, at all potential options. Okay. But I think that's a good example where using an exemption is still completing a CEQA evaluation. Mm -hmm. it, it, it right, and look, both uh, Director Yakutiel and I are both, we're both hammered on the same point, which is speed. Um, but again, what I am nervous about is that if we're in some form of CEQA review, uh, someone could send us to court 
and then who knows, maybe we have the, the bike plan from hell, right, that we're still litigating. Colleagues, I, I'm just going to jump in here. I appreciate this. I appreciate that you're raising this. I'm just going to point out, even with the slow streets item earlier last week, we went through CEQA, which meant staff identified that there was a statutory exemption for slow streets and CEQA, and end of story. So I, I really trust the city attorney to do their job here and find the, the most expeditious pathway through the CEQA process. Okay. And can I just... I can I I just add that it's just a requirement as a former planning commissioner. You just can't bypass CEQA. There has to be, even if it's an exemption, there has to be a process by which the an like a application is quote unquote filed, um, and you can get categorical exemption or exemption from a law, etc. And then there's you know various uh, more aggressive. But because of what we're talking about isn't uh, aggressive, it shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be a problem, right? Well, I guess we'll find out. Thank you. Okay, Director Kahina on the phone, please. Thank you, Madam Vice Chair. Um, so I appreciate the staff report um, that was uh, written up for this item. Um, and and based on the presentation as well, um, I do have some questions on how well positioned we are to take on the implementation of this new policy. Um, and so, um, just to shed some color on this and, and help me understand this a bit more, um, I did see in um, the staff report that um, there can be some implications on, um, for instance, like our paint shop's ability to answer or to um, uh, be uh, responsive to 311 requests. And um, so, I just wanted to understand um, from the perspective of staff how how our team right now is currently structured to implement these this um, this policy and if there are any adjustments we'll have to make in order to better position the team to do so um, and what that looks like um, and if there are any costs involved any any other things that they can um, anticipate we'll need to do um, to better position ourselves to take this on Fantastic. Uh, wonderful question. Um, thank you uh, once again, Sean Kennedy, uh, Transit Planning Manager. Um, so uh, like with with anything, there are trade-offs. Um, and for sure, um, obviously, uh, this, this involves trade-offs. As you noted, um, right now, our, our paint shops are really overworked and, and overwhelmed. They're doing a, a ton of projects th all throughout the city. Um, you know, we got uh, a lot of feedback that, that, that people were surprised it was going to take a while to paint red curb. Um, and they're right. It doesn't take a long time to paint your red curb uh, if, if you're not doing anything else. But our paint shops are doing uh, a ton of stuff. And so um, that's why we said we worked with the paint shop, talked through um, what, they're, what they're currently working on, how we could fit um, these things in um, and, and still make some substantial progress. And that's why we landed on the 50 to 75 um, locations uh, a month that we think we can implement. Um, but as you noted, that obviously does come with trade-offs. And that specifically, um, you know, the 311 uh, complaints and follow-ups, there's a, there's a backlog um, already in there. And, and obviously, if they take time to paint these, these red curbs, um, you know, there's going to be less time for them uh, to focus on, on following up those, those 311 changes. So, um, you know, we're coordinating uh, with them. And, and, uh, and this number seems like a pretty reasonable number, both to, to, to our staff as well as as well as the paint shop, but um, like I said, and, and as your question noted, there's there's definitely trade-offs um, with with implementing this policy. And Sean, can you tell me what the backlog currently looks like Ooh. for some of our? 
Um, I, I believe it's uh, in the in the two the two hundred range is what uh, last I last I heard, and I, I would definitely defer to defer to Tom on that. But um, that's the the more order of magnitude I had understood it was at. Great. Um, so that that brings up some concerns, <laughs> because if we already have um, a pretty heavy backlog and we're trying to position ourselves to tackle um, 70 plus um, in addition to that backlog, I and we're having challenges just managing the workload as is. Um, I, I do have some strong concerns on how we'll be able to implement this policy. Um, Director so, Kihina, can I ask, does that, does, that, does that mean that you find something substantively wrong with the policy? Do you, I mean, do you have, I understand the implementation concerns, that this is board direction around making sure there's unobstructed access to buses at bus stops. Well, no, I, I think one of the things we need to consider in addition to the policy is how well we can execute said policy, right? And if there's anything substantively we need to do in terms of additional staffing, additional like, and additional direction that we need to figure out um, on the management side um, so that we could support um, the director in his his structuring of his team um, in order to be able to execute on, on these sorts of policies. Um, it's always challenging to, to approve a policy and not being able to implement it in the long term because we're just not positioned to do it. Um, but I appreciate your question, um, Vice Chair Eakin. Um, another question I had, Sean, um, if you could um, entertain me. Um, could you also clarify how many of these flag stops are located on commercial corridors? Um, so uh, I don't have the exact, so we, we have about, we lumped them all together when we did the analysis of uh, frequent lines, but also in commercial corridors. And that was a total of, I think, 450-ish uh, locations. And so um, I'm not sure exactly how many fit just in the commercial core, commercial corridor um, um, sphere, but uh, it's, I would, you know, it's, it's somewhere south of 450. Um, but it's still going to be a substantial amount. And um, does this policy um, at all implicate some of the other policies that we have on shared spaces, on um, any other policies that involve like curbside management, um, including outdoor dining, anything that could possibly create some, some friction with the business community? I'm just wanting to see if that's something we should flag. Uh, that's a that's a good flag. Thank you for that. We, we you know we're working closely with our um, our shared spaces teams and the and the curb management team to make sure um, that we're, that we're not doing that. And that's why you know each each place deserves and needs a, an actual site visit uh, by an engineer to see what exactly going on the street. And and so some places we might end up with uh, you know 14 to 16 foot red curb versus a you know full 20 foot uh, red curb. But um, we'll be taking all of that into account when we do the actual implementation. And so this policy that we're approving today, um, it has room for you to to make those um, those accommodations in the event there is a curb that um, is being utilized as a shared space or um, any other, I guess, policy that is currently implicating the curb um, that would possibly be in conflict with this policy. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, I believe that's accurate, yes. Okay, thank you, Sean. 
just to address Director Kahina's concerns, as I'm reading this, there's nothing in here about an implementation deadline or timeline or compromising your resources. This is simply a policy statement, and the deference is to staff as to how and when you would implement. Correct, uh, correct, and we, and we just uh, wanted to you know, give some kind of boundaries on what we were thinking when we were talking about implementation, but you know, obviously when we, when we start doing it, we'll, it will, there'll be some, I'm sure, some changes. Okay, great, thank you for raising those issues. Director Kahina, uh, Director Hinzi. Thank you, Madam Vice Chair. I just wanted to um, <laughs> ask the questions around, well, ask the questions around um, the accessibility component of this and, and um, staff met with me yesterday and um, handled most of these, but on the record. <laughs> so, um, staff is going to try to um, accomplish these however many can receive the red curve treatment and then go back and do the ones that need bus zone and uh, and transit mobiles, et cetera, correct? Is that your current thinking? Yeah, yeah, yes, that, that is correct. Uh, that's the plan at, at this point. And obviously, you know, once we get going and see specific locations, um, you know, maybe maybe there's some where we take a time out and, and, and advance the full, full zone at that time. But, um, you know, at this yeah. point, yes, that's the plan. Okay. And so then, while you're doing the red curve treatment, uh, you can be working in concert with <laughs> accessible services uh, and that and their team to sort of make a list at least of uh, you know possible stops that may need this or extent extensive comprehensive treatment to to get the 20 feet of clearance. Exactly. Um, the idea is that uh, Annette's staff will come with us when we're doing the site visits, and we'll be flagging um, which ones at that time we'd want to come back um, and do a you know more extensive treatment at. Um, and I think we pointed out in the staff report there's several different uh, treatments we would look at, um, and uh, and you know just flagging the first time we go out there which ones we'd want to come back to. Yeah, I, I think eventually. <clears throat> the sort of the disability community and, and the accessibility community sort of want once these more more detailed extensive uh projects were possible but um given the need um for as expeditious to do the, this to satisfy this particular directive that we're getting to do this particular thing as expeditiously as possible, um, I would be I would be supportive of the policy to paint all the all the red curves we can, and then go back to to really do the the detail more extensive treatments. I did just want to follow up on um, Director Kahina's concern around the paint shop. You know, given that we're asking them to do quick builds and, and, and this as well as well as pre one one complaints. I don't know if Director McGuire is there, but do, do you know how many I is the paint shop fully staffed? I heard at an item that that there were there was uh, still some hiring left to do. So um, 
do, do we have a number of our paint shop folks that we need to hire? I do. Uh, good afternoon, Directors Tom McGuire, Streets Director. Um, Director Hinzi, uh, the paint shop, uh, like, like all skilled trades in San Francisco, the paint shop has had hiring challenges. We, we did just bring on a large new class of, of painters, so we are, we're definitely turning the tide. Uh, and for a sense of that, um, we, we have a, our, our 311 queue every month either grows or it shrinks, and it has been shrinking since the <laughs> summer. Um, so we are getting on top of the, uh, the backlog of 311 and curb and sidewalk painting, uh, crosswalk painting requests. But um, just for a sense of scale, we have about a backlog of about 500 outstanding requests right now as of okay. November. Now that's down from over 600 a month ago, so we're making progress. Uh, okay. But yeah. yeah. All right. Um, and then Sean and, and team, do we. Are we gonna even for the med curve treatment? Do you, do you intend to to sort of? I know we're trying to do as blanket an environmental review as we can. So do do you all when actually ordering the paint shop to do it? Do you anticipate grouping them, batching them as much you can by I don't know line or equity neighborhood or neighborhood period? Um, What's your sense of how how we're going to get this done? Oh, uh, sure. So, are you are you're asking uh, how are we prioritizing uh, all these nine hundred yeah. locations? Uh, yeah. So, we're we're going to start in our muni equity strategy. We have um, lines identified um, for uh, for heavy uh, senior uh, and disabled use of those lines. So, we're going to start with those lines first. Um, and looking at the overlap on where we have near side flag stops, uh, and then and then moving on to uh, commercial corridors and 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 um, frequent lines, and then eventually we'll get to uh, some of the smaller uh, kind of neighborhood services up in the hills. Okay, great. Um, and just for my position, colleagues, um, I under I look forward to as Director Heminger was saying, the more. The more detailed uh, version of uh, the numbers for uh, our board workshop and sort of having this the fair the fair slash fair enforcement and where we where we go from here sort of question at the board workshop, but I have no problem with approving today's um, MTC hypothetical exercise as well as the the flight the flight stop policy. Thank you, Madam Basher. Thank you, Director Hinsey. Are there any further comments from board members? If not, I will move to public comment in the room. No public commenters in the room. We can open the phone lines. We have five callers in the queue. First caller, please. Go ahead, speaker. <coughs> Uh, good afternoon. This is Peter Strauss on the Board of San Francisco Transit Riders. Uh, this document first came to my attention when that reporter, you know, uh, sent me the draft and asked me uh, my, our reaction to the service cuts that SFMTA was proposing. So I found myself in the somewhat unusual position of being the one to try to explain the scenarios to him and, uh, and explain that I did not believe that SFMTA was formally proposing cuts at this time. <clears throat> we subsequently met with Jeff and he affirmed 
and actually insisted that the agency was not committed uh, to cuts and, in fact, was committed to restoration of full service, not just the uh, 2022 service plan, but to some version of full service. I think the public deserves some clarity. There needs to be some consistent messaging that the agency's goal is to restore some semblance um, of, uh, of full service, not just the 82 percent in the uh, um, uh, 2022 service plan, at least for uh, non-downtown trips. It would help, you know, actually to have a target date, uh, not just that 2024 target for when full service or some semblance thereof might be restored. It would also help clarify the messaging for this goal to be stated clearly in the SRTP that uh, the seconds. goal of the agency is still, is still restoration of some version of full service. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Next speaker, please. Moderator, next speaker, please. You've been unmuted. This is Herbert Weiner. Uh, my concern is about the long distance it takes to walk to a bus stop. For instance, on from Masonic and Fulton Street, to Baker and McAllister Street, there's no bus stop. And that bus stop was actually eliminated. And it's a very long bus stop, and no one has really done an evaluation of the impact of bus stop distance for seniors and the disabled. This has been an eyesore and an elephant in the room for too long, and you have never got a medical finding on the impact of walking long distances to the bus stop. Now, you are being shamefully derelict in not doing this. And it's about time that you start restoring some of these bus stops. You really have an obligation to the public to do this. It's not only seniors and the disabled, it's the average passenger who walks to the bus stop and has his, his bus that he desires to get on whiz by. You are really not serving the public. And I don't see how the restoration of bus stops would have any impact on the budget or anything else. So please restore this. Uh, you're 30 really seconds. providing a disservice to the public. And in fact, that's why people uh, are critical of Muni, and rightfully so. Passengers should have the same parity that bicyclists have. And we really need to have those bus stops restored. So I don't, I can't accept any rationale for these long distances to the bus stop. It doesn't make the buses run okay. faster. Thank you. I think that's your time. And Thank it, you. Thank you. Next speaker. Great, David Pilpel, um, very quickly. The story from Steve Boland is helpful, but the written material lacks meaningful, detailed explanation. I saw no maps and no specifics on increasing, decreasing, or continuing current transit service levels. 
there are city budget implications here. The general fund is softening this fiscal year, though there's gonna be a deficit uh, next fiscal year. We're gonna hear about that uh, Thursday afternoon. I predict it'll be between 100 and 300 million uh, to the general fund. A recession is possible. Uh, you know, the fiscal cliff is coming sooner than you think. I don't see the fourth scenario here that Director Heminger was uh, discussing. Uh, the chart with the service levels at the end has the same staff for each scenario, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I thought the MTC ask, which was reasonable, was for three different, very different scenarios with revenues and ridership driving service levels. I see verbiage here, but no analysis of what this means in the real world as to staff, as to ridership, as to service cuts, or increases for that matter. Uh, the, the bus stop guidelines, meanwhile, are not uh, related or required. I think it's a sneak, it is sneaky to include them here. There are CEQA implications. Removing parking at Flagstop citywide has major uh, implications. I think it would be better to review uh, the lines, locations, and ridership. Consider stop uh, reduction and consolidation. Near side and far side stops. Stop uh, hardware and infrastructure such as uh, shelters and uh, stations. I would sever the guidelines, the bus stop guidelines. I would add a resolve clause authorizing or directing that a copy be sent to MTC because it doesn't say that. I would also post the final approved SRTP on the website. The 2019 posted SRTP is not the final adopted version. It was the draft. And finally, I did not like okay, the cavalier attitude I heard Pablo, earlier about CEQA, environmental review. Thank and you, thank you for your comment. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, uh, Directors. This is uh, Roland from Brown in San Jose. Um, I apologize if I misunderstood uh, Jonathan's earlier comment that uh, Muni were using fares to estimate ridership because Caltrain are currently in the process of installing passenger counters at Fourth and King specifically to monitor potential issues with fair collection at the San Francisco terminal. So in closing, um, my question uh, through the chair is whether Muni um, light rail and buses are using passenger counters, and if not, why not? Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. Hi, good afternoon, Director. Zach Lipton in District 6. Uh, I really appreciate um, and want to support the update to the bus stop guidelines here that will improve accessibility and reduce barriers to transit ridership. Uh, we already have the political will here with the unanimous vote of the Board of Supervisors, and the public process is, is already done in this case. Um, and I'm encouraged that we seem to have a way to do this in a year or two instead of seven, and just want to echo the comments of you all about speeding this up. Uh, it's been well over a year at this point since the Board passed the resolution. And I think we all have a general sense of how long painting curbs takes. I, I fully recognize it's not just as simple as grabbing a paint roller, but I also ask that we try not to overcomplicate this, that it's not that much more complicated than it. Um, the city of Emeryville was able to install steeding at all of its bus stops in one year to while the claim. Um, so I'd love to see creative solutions to speed this up. If we need to give notice, can we just notice the entire city at once? Um, if environmental clearance needs to happen, 
like like you asked, can we just do one packet for the entire city? If the engineering paperwork is the barrier, can we send an engineer out along to work alongside the paint crew and paint alongside an entire bus line in one day? Um, I'd also ask that if we're sending the paint shop out to bus stops, that they could refresh the bus stop markings at the same time. A lot of our flag stops are poorly or in many cases entirely unmarked and people are never going to ride the bus if they don't know the stop exists. Uh, with seconds. regard to the STRP, I'd just add that I think there's a wide bench of transit advocates here that would like to do more to help the agency advocate for funding and broadly have it sort of lack the tools to do so. So as that process continues, I hope you can take advantage of that resource and engage advocates who'd like to speak up for more transit funding. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Good afternoon, Edward Mason. Regarding flag stops, there are situations where you require neither a near side or a far side flag uh, stop. The reason is in Noe Valley on Castro Street at Elizabeth 23rd and then 21st and 20th, you don't want to stop at the curb because those are very steep hills. Consequently, what we currently have and most operators follow is stopping on the flat section of the intersection. And it is accessible because of the curb cuts that are currently available for wheelchair. If you were to stop on the grade, it's impossible to lower and deploy the wheelchair lift. And especially if you're on crutches, as I was, stopping on the grade and boarding and deboarding is a real problem. When you have groceries and carrying those, the weight of the gravity increases the weight of what you're really carrying. And if you have to board or deboard on a grade, it's just that much more stability that is at the issue. So you need to put into this provisions to retain those stops in the intersection where the where it is flat and evaluate where it is the rest of the city. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Hi, uh, my name's Lisa Church. I'm a D3 resident. Um, I just want to say, first of all, thank you very much for pushing forward on getting all of these stops eventually. Uh, painted red. Uh, I believe at the last meeting it was 1,600 and somehow we're talking about 900 now, but, but I'm very glad to see this happen. I would uh, agree with a previous caller that I hope that we can move forward as quickly as possible if we can notice everything at once, uh, whatever it is. All of my bus stops are flag stops um, and some of them are very dangerous. Um, uh, I also don't think the person before was being flippant about the environmental review. We are in San Francisco and we know that it is used as a tool uh, to delay projects. It's important, but it shouldn't be allowed to move this along. So again, thank you for pushing this forward. I'm very happy to see it happen. I hope we can do it in as efficient way as possible. I understand the paint shop is backed up you know, potentially we could prioritize safety related paint jobs over others. But 
Um, mostly, I just wanted to say thank you, and I look forward to having a safe bus stop. Thanks. Thank you. Next speaker. Hi, board. Uh, Luke Bornheimer, just calling to echo um, the praise and um, calls of other advocates um, on this issue. Thank you all for your, your vocal support of shortening this timeline and getting flag stops uh, painted and, and cleared and unobstructed. Um, just want to echo many of the calls to, you know, speed up the process and, for example, you know, working with traffic engineering to try to agendize all of the stops um, in one meeting just to kind of limit blowback from public comment and not have to have that team go through three or four rounds of public comment, um, as well as just to get it, get it done in one fell swoop. Um, also, it would be great to include in that just making it illegal to then park at bus stops after that is passed engineering hearing, even if the bus stops are not painted yet. Um, just, just to really set this precedent and, and get people aware of it as soon as possible. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's about it, but, but thank you all for your support of this. <clears throat> it's a really important issue, and I think uh, it sends a clear message to, to people across our city that we value public transit and we value people's time and their safety uh, getting to uh, uh, bus stops. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. That concludes the online comment. Okay, Chair, I'd like to move the item. Close public comment. Thank you for the motion. Dr. Gutierrez, is there a second? Second. Second. Roll call, please. On the motion to approve, Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Eakin. Aye. Eakin, aye. Chair Borden. Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The item is approved. Okay, colleagues, I have to leave the meeting. I'll pass the mic back to Chair Borden on the phone. Thank you. Uh, uh, Secretary Silva, can you please call the next item? Places you on item number six, authorizing the Director of Transportation to execute modification number four to contract number 1304, Muni Metro System King substation upgrade with DMZ builders to agree to a global settlement of all contractors' delay claims, which were primarily caused by PG&E activity, extending the contract term by 950 days to January 12, 2023, and increasing the contract amount by $2.55 million for a total contract amount not to exceed $15,372,966 and making environmental review findings. Great. All right, we'll move on to our uh, staff, please. Hi, uh, my name is Karno Balan, project manager, SFMTA. Can you get, oh, need to get a little closer to the mic there. <laughs> Sorry about that. There my we name, go. Okay, yep. my name is Karno Balan, project manager, SFMTA. And let me go through the small slide over here. So we are here today to get your approval for this contract modification. It's a global settlement uh, to about 2.5 million and uh, 2.5 million and 950 days contract extension. Um, this project, you can see that uh, on the slide, the location is very close to Oracle Park, and uh, in order to in order to uh, work on the permanent substation, we have to install a mobile substation. Um, that is the one created the problem. Uh, 
from pg and &E. And uh, this is the early stages of the project. Uh, put us in a really uh, bad situation as that continued uh, through the pandemic. And uh, once uh, we got the power after a year and a half of delays, uh, when we start moving the power from permanent substation to the mobile substation, we also encountered a surgery failure, which is a fuse. Uh, this is a very compact uh, mobile substation on a wheel. And um, so uh, it's a very high voltage, so we need to make sure that we uh, safety is number one issue. So we brought in a consultant, and uh, he gave us some suggestions, and we modified the location of those surgery resters, eight of them, put them outside of the mobile substation uh, with a new model. And they, that worked out pretty well. So far, we don't have any problem. Large, last eight months, uh, the mobile substation is giving power to the King Street as well as uh, Central Subway. Um, once all the power, all the connections are made to the mobile substation, we wanted to work on the permanent substation. In order to do that, we asked pg need to turn off the power. And again, they took more time. Uh, it's also about three plus months delayed on that one. And uh, that uh, also uh, give us all the work, contract work uh, pushed much more late. So the uh, contractor sent us uh, three certified claims. The first one is the shutdown. We had it uh, in early stages and not knowing when the PG&E is going to give us the power for the mobile substation. And that was pretty straightforward. We told them when to stop, when to start, with the minimum staff uh, on site. Uh, and that was executed a while back. The second and third claims are pretty complicated. And uh, so we hired a consultant to help us out, uh, claims specialist. And uh, we did an independent analysis based on our document, documents, what we have, RE diaries, et cetera. And uh, this uh, contractor's claim, 5 million plus, is includes um, the uh, overhead delays, as well as uh, storage costs, as well as uh, labor escalation. Because they came to work 2018, they're mostly uh, uh, um, the, it, it passed uh, their, their contract uh, am, amount. Uh, I mean, the, the labor cost went up, and uh, so they added labor escalation. Uh, we went, uh, did our own analysis, and this $2.5 million includes um, the overhead plus the labor escalation plus the storage. And uh, we had a long negotiation back and forth. Uh, eventually we found that $2.5 million is uh, reasonable and justifiable. So we ask your approval for that one. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the most of the delays uh, is related to PG&E, uh, not, not uh, giving us a timely responses, unforeseen conditions, electrical device malfunction, which I kind of mentioned, and competing resources with Central Subway because more when we want to shut down uh, to do our work, sometimes we need to make sure we coordinate with Central Subway 
you know, uh, uh, their testing uh, of the trains. Does that conclude your presentation? One more page, and I'm, okay. I'll be done. Uh, so currently, where we, the project is, uh, the project is uh, all the new equipments are installed, all the wirings are completed, um, all the roof workers are done, and uh, they are doing the testing um, currently. And uh, we are hoping that will be done either this month or early ne ne uh, next, next year. And uh, once that work is completed, we will ask pg &E to come one more time to power up the permanent substation. And uh, that's what we have now. I'm more than happy to answer your questions. Okay, I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of issues here with the fact that pg &E did not do what they were supposed to do and this is severely delayed. So how does that factor into this so-called settlement that we have arrived at? Um, so the um, this is uh, kind of we are going to pay, uh, even though there are some uh, PGE delays. Uh, we can go after them. I will leave attorney uh, our counsel to respond to that one. We have been close contact with them. Uh, but we are going to pay, pay uh, and settle the contract now, and uh, we see what we have to do uh, to get some of the money back from PG. Is the city attorney or anyone here to weigh in on that just a little bit before we get into the dig into this? Because I know this is um, a concern to people. Sure. Good afternoon, Director Stephanie Stewart Bethune, uh, Deputy City Attorney. With respect to your question, Chair Borden, the um, what we can commit to do is is go after PG&E to the greatest extent possible, and we'll do all that we can to try and recover anything that we can. But we can't make any guarantee with respect to um, getting any payment from PG&E. And we just decided to, to settle it now because if the costs go up if we don't settle it this time. Yeah, if you don't settle, there's a high potential. Uh, they will send a, a government court claims, and they will probably uh, not complete the work. And we can't take the chance because uh, this uh, uh, substation powers uh, Central Subway as well as uh, um, all the King Street one. So this is a very critical project that we can't uh, delay anymore. Okay, so I'll take go to Director Hinzi. Sure, and just to tag on to your uh, line of questioning there, Chair Borden. So, um, PG&E was not involved in the in this settlement here at, at all, like the settlement negotiations. Could you repeat the question, please? Was PG&E at all involved in these settlement negotiations? Uh, no, it's uh, strictly okay. with the uh, uh, SFMTA and the contractor. Yeah, I would just, for the record, I would agree with Chair Borden that it seems like from meeting your, from meeting this item and uh, hearing your presentation that, that PG&E is the party most at fault here, so I would be in favor of trying to go after PD for as 
like as much of this as we can because you know most of the clients that we have are and the contractor has for that matter are caused by PG delays so it seems that they should be at least, at least to some extent held reliable I know I know city attorney claims that um, there, there's no guarantees but I would at least like to see us give give it our give it our best attempt um, yeah are there any other directors I can't see any hands up are there any other directors who have any comments at this time before I move on to comment director Hemminger <laughs> madam chair just a brief comment um, apropos our earlier item uh, you know PG&E to me is sort of like CEQA they just uh, Cost you money, cost you time, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. I, I wish we could. Thank you. Thank you. Any other directors before we move to public comment? No other directors. Great. We'll move to public comment. Um, uh, there doesn't appear anyone in the room who'd like to make a public comment. No speakers in the room. All right. Then we'll move to online, please. One speaker in the queue. First caller. Can you hear me now? Yes, you can, Mr. Pilpel. Great, David Pilpel. Uh, last comment today, perhaps my last comment of the year. Um, the presentation that was made is not posted on the website. If you could see to it that that is posted. Um, by the way, last week's approved resolutions are also not yet posted, and I was uh, looking for some of the details there. Um, I have no real objection uh, to this item, but I suggest that the story behind it uh, be sent to SFPUC uh, as another document in the continuing uh, horror story that is PG&E's relationship with uh, San Francisco as much as they advertise and claim to be a good company and undergrounding this and that. They've in fact obstructed, delayed, and caused you know many problems for city departments and um, our, our ability to I mean, this is just a, a small example, and if it takes this long to do this kind of upgrade, then, you know, good luck to us in, in uh, building the electric infrastructure for uh, battery vehicles at the various uh, divisions. They're, they're going to require, you know, who knows what, and I'm, I'm very concerned about the implications there. Finally, um, Enclosure 3, the project uh, budget and financial plan, has no specific line item for today's action. Um, I would find it most helpful in the future uh, for this, these one-page uh, budget and financial plans to have a specific line item for today's action on the cost side and a corresponding uh, line item or items on the funding sources so I know what's uh, funding this, you know, two million plus uh, uh, contract mod. I'm, I'm not suggesting that there's anything untoward going on here. It's just to um, have that documentation be available to the public. And um, uh, last, I believe the next meeting of this board is not until January 17th, which seconds. is more than a month away. So happy holidays and more fun next year. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Pilpel. No additional speakers. Okay, with that, we will close public comments. Directors, is there a motion? I'll move the item. So second. Second. All right, please call the roll. Secretary Silva? On the motion to approve, Director Kahina? Aye. Kahina, aye. Director Hemminger? Aye. Hemminger, aye. Director Hinsey? 
Aye. Kinsey, aye. Director Yukutiel? Aye. Yukutiel, aye. aye. Chair Borden? Aye. Borden, aye. Thank you. The item is approved and concludes the business before you today and this year. Great. I adjourn our last meeting of December of 2023. 2022, gosh. <laughs> December 13, 2022. I wish everyone a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you all at our next meeting on January 17th or our workshop in February. Thank you. Take Thank care. You.